Welcome to another episode of In Reserve, the Prosperity Podcast, where we focus on all things to do with the Reserve Protocol stablecoin. My name is Michael, and I'll be your host. Are you ready? Let's get started. First, a word from our sponsors, nobody. If you would like to sponsor the podcast, please shoot me a DM at RSR Ernie on Twitter or email me at inreservepodcast at gmail.com. Also, please check out erniesreservestore.com for all of your reserve t-shirts, sweaters, hats, and more, as well as a full list of podcast episodes to date. On this episode of the podcast, we've got our first ever three-man weave. That's a basketball reference for those of you out there who aren't familiar. Two of the smartest people in the reserve community, one of them being the TA God in our RSR Discord, and another being a fellow chartered accountant and a former Olympian, both members of Diamond Atlas. Welcome Rocky, who is RSR GOAT, and Leith. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having us on today. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mark. No worries, no worries. Just a little briefer on what this podcast is about for those of you guys new here. I started it in hopes to build community, as well as help people and myself learn and understand the project more. Part of community building was getting to know some of the bigger members of the reserve space better and getting to know them a bit outside of crypto. So with that in mind, I think a great starting point would be getting to know both of you guys better. If you'd like to give the listeners just a super quick introduction about yourself for those who don't already know you, and we can go from there. So who wants to start? Yeah, Rocky, do you want to take the lead here? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Um, so I'm RSR Goat in the Discord and on Twitter. Um, been in the RSR community since about August of last year, is which uh, at which point I got into the coin, joined the Discord, um, and from there, you know, it was kind of I, I got hooked and really enjoyed, you know, being able to participate, learn about the project, learn about crypto as a whole from there. Um, but just outside of RSR, um, I've actually work in the wine industry. Um, it's one of my main passions in life. And so I work for a wine app. I've been doing that for almost two years now. Um, so, you know, it's kind of fun to see that Reserve's building an app and that we're working on an app or that I work at an app that has to do with wine, see some similarities there. Um, that's just a brief little intro to me. I'll let you take it off from here. Thanks for having us on the, on the podcast. So my name is Lee Shankland. Um, as was mentioned, I'm a former Olympian and a chartered accountant. Um, I hail from South Africa in Durban um, and recently moved to London about two and a half years ago, um, mostly for a career opportunity. Um, for about two and a half years, I've been working in the financial services industry in London and most recently have been sort of introduced into the crypto space. Um, I originally started investing in crypto probably three years ago when, when I heard about Bitcoin and Ethereum. But in terms of any other altcoins, I got really interested in the summer of last year. And yeah, it's just been a wild ride since then. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. That's great to hear an intro from both of you guys. And sorry, Rocky, but I think the most interesting thing I've heard so far has been that Leith was a former Olympian. And so we've, we've got to definitely start there, especially given uh, the current times. And I guess the Olympics just ended. Uh, we're recording today, August 8th in the morning. So I think the, the closing ceremonies was last night, uh, Pacific time. And um, have you guys been watching any of the Olympics? 
Well, I've been I've been quite an avid watcher of all the sports. I'm mostly swimming since I was a swimmer. Um, I, I competed in the London 2012 Olympics. Um, hence why I wanted to move here. I think just the whole sort of environment around and and the the hop around Olympics is unbelievable. And well, while this Olympics there was a little bit more of controversy. Um, with there being no spectators and everything like that, I think the whole games itself kind of went off really well, and there there weren't that many incidences. Um, and at least the athletes got to compete. You know, I think a lot of the time we we forget that these athletes have been training for five years, um, normally normally four years, but five years at the moment. And all they wanted to do was just compete and and show everyone around the world their skills. So yeah, I've been an avid watcher of all the sports. It's been amazing. Um, a lot of world records, actually. Um, I think that's testament to how hard these athletes have trained during the lockdowns. And um, yeah, a lot of emotion, um, as you can imagine, because a lot of the times they didn't realize that they were actually going to compete. I think there was going to be an instance where um, the games were just going to be postponed. I think the last time that happened was during World War II. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Um, I didn't get to watch the closing ceremony, but I did watch the final of the water polo today. Um, very good win by Serbia. And uh, yeah, it's been amazing. Um, what can I say there? From what they were given in, in Tokyo, they've kind of met every expectation I can I can imagine. Are you watching Rocky? Um, did you watch? Yeah, a little bit here and there, um, but not, not as much as uh, some people I know. Uh, Leap and I were talking the other night and it was, you know, I think like 1 a.m. is time. Like, I, I'm going to let you hop off. I know you work tomorrow. He's like, nope, I'm up until, you know, I got to see all these certain events tonight. So he, he's definitely uh, takes the crown on who's been watching more. Yeah, I mean, I mean I've mean, uh, i I've kept up with it as well. Um, it's just hard not to kind of uh, keep up with it. Um, living in Canada, uh, I think we had our best ever Olympic uh, Olympics um, in terms of medal count. Um, and just the stories that come out of it that I'm, I'm, I'm basically a sucker for that. Um, a lot of these sports, obviously we don't keep track of until you get every four years, or I guess in this case, five years, um, and, and no spectators suck. Um, but at the same time, it's just watching the pure emotion of these, of these people and, and Leith, I'm sure you'll be able to relate, but just people who have been training, um, for the past 10, 15, 20, their whole lives, just, just for this one moment. And, and that, um, both sides of it, right? The, the pure ecstasy of, of doing your best on that Olympic stage, and then also the heartbreak and disappointment if you don't do as well. Um, and then just reading some of the stories, um, uh, because we are a country, or I guess Canada, what I'm saying, we um, that don't win as many medals, every single person who does win, um, their story kind of gets highlighted. And you see some stories, um, like there's a swimmer, Maggie McNeil, um, she swims at University of Michigan right now. But um, yeah. like she was born in China, uh, was basically abandoned at birth, adopted by um, two people in Canada, grew up in Canada, swims for Canada and, and ends up winning gold. And it's like, that story is just absolutely incredible. And you see stuff like that. And I was born in Hong Kong and we had a Hong Kong swimmer. I guess we, we won a medal in swimming for the first time ever. Um, a, a half Hong Kong, half Irish person. And, um, and she's just absolutely blown up back in Hong Kong. And it's fantastic to see stories like that. So I am a sucker for that. Um, there is a lot of other sports that that, that I, I do question to myself why they are sports in the Olympic Games, but um, but it's just really cool to see. Uh, I, I'm a sucker to, and, I, and I'll watch anything in which somebody will spend that amount of time and dedicate their whole lives to that moment. Um, so I think that's really cool. Um, Leith, you used to be a swimmer. Yeah. Um, how was that training process and what 
what got you into swimming? Was that something that you, you just kind of grew up doing when you were a child and then decided, like, how do you decide to be an Olympian? <laughs> so it's, it's quite interesting. Um, when I was younger, I kind of did all the sports. Um, I was, if you, if you asked me at probably eight years old, I could quote all the records. I could quote like who in, in cricket, for example, I could tell you who had the most sort of, um, uh, wickets or how, how many runs they would have scored. Um, if it was rugby, I could tell you who was the highest point scorer. Like I was a very avid sports fan. And obviously growing up, you kind of want to try everything. And the one reason I, I got into swimming was um, when I was younger, 18 months old, actually, um, I fell in a pool and nearly drowned. Um, and what saved me was my initial kind of infant training where um, you, you learn how to hang on to the wall. Um, and ever since then, my, my parents kind of just threw me into swimming lessons. Um, the first teacher I actually had told me that, told my parents that I would never be really good because, I don't know, I, I wasn't concentrating enough or uh, I just didn't have the stroke or I kept sinking or whatever it might have been. Um, and I think that's kind of testament to why I was trying so hard. You know, I think you want to prove people wrong. I think people love to be proven you love to prove people wrong as an individual and as a competitive athlete. Um, a lot of the times you get that from the media. And uh, if you if you take someone like Michael Phelps, for example, who went through a lot of controversy during 2012 um, and didn't perform as everyone expected him to because he didn't win all the golds, you know. Um, and he kind of came back in 2016 and basically won all golds and was like, I told you so kind of thing. And that was his driver, you know, I think – the, the hard work and dedication is, is always the fact that you want to outperform everyone's expectations, but most importantly, you want to outperform your own expectations. I think that's the thing that, that these athletes have in, in droves. Um, the training aspect of it was just brutal. I think I started training in the mornings from like five o'clock in the morning um, when I was 13. And in, in doing so, I was doing, I was still doing other sports, um, but I was waking up at five training for two hours, going to school, coming home, going to the training pool again. Um, if I was doing another sport, it would have been in the evening. Um, so it got, it got to a stage where I was kind of kind of getting burnt out by doing all the other sports and I had to choose. And I've always wanted to be an Olympian. Um, and the, the thing that got me into it and wanting to be a South African swimming Olympian was the fact that our uh, freestyle relay won in Athens. And that was when I was about 11 years old. And you just get that kind of inspiration for it, you know. And, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to be on a World Champs team just before the Olympics in 2012. And then was able to qualify and obviously compete. And then, yeah, it, it, it just – it's actually surreal going to the Olympics and kind of trying to take it all in. Um, that's the hardest part about being an athlete is you train all these hours and you train, like I said, four years for literally one moment. And a lot of the time people are so in their own heads that they don't realize what they've achieved. And um, I, I only had to real, realize that after I retired, I was like, wow, you actually did do pretty well to get to that level. And um, and then you should have appreciated more because like I said, you're always in the in competition mode. You don't really think about anything else. And then afterwards you're like, wow, I should have probably taken in that moment a little bit more. Um, and that's that's where you see all the emotion um, from the medalists, you know. Um, 
and 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 all the, the emotion of people that don't perform how they want to perform because there's just so much effort that goes into it and in any in any case it, it just makes you into a better person i think i think you it it enables you to handle pressure it enables you to be able to converse it enables you to handle high pressure situations and that's kind of uh one of the things you can carry with you in your, in your whole life yeah yeah definitely for sure and i think a lot of those sports um, such as swimming, for example. And this is something that uh, I actually just realized these Olympics, you get people who finish, um, let's say, I think the marathon yesterday, uh, Elliot Kiprogi, one of the, the greatest marathon runners of all time, if not the absolute greatest, but you see people coming in like 20th place who are super ecstatic. Um, and then you see next to their time that they ran a personal best. And, and like a lot of these sports, you're not competing against somebody else as much as, well, you are, but as much as you're competing against your own time, and really, when you show up to that stage, the biggest stage that you can possibly have for your sport, and let's say you do a personal best, um, regardless of where you finish compared to everybody else on earth, there's really nothing else you could really ask for more from that athlete and the way that they represent a country um, is that they've, they've done their absolute best. And, and I think a lot of people don't really understand that, that sure, they're, they're there, but like the top of the top, like everybody has their own kind of ceiling that they can hit, right? You always read about Michael Phelps and how his body type was just perfect to be a swimmer. He's got flippers for feet. He's got a really long torso, long arms. Not everybody has that genetic makeup. So while everybody might like swimming, some people just can't, their, their ceiling is a lot lower. Um, yeah. I, I want to ask you about, about your experience at, in, in London. Um, and, and swimming mm -hmm. is generally the first weekend too. Um, did you stay in the, uh, uh, in the village. Um, and if you did, did you stay the whole time afterwards to get that experience? Because yeah. obviously you might've been a little tense beforehand, but once you're done competing, it's all kind of pressures off and then you can sort of enjoy yourself a bit more. Yeah, of course. So, um, what happens is, uh, there's a whole lead up to the Olympics, um, as you can imagine. So as soon as we left in the May, uh, in 2012 and the, the games only started in August. So we had a whole run up of three months of, of training and racing and, kind of holding camps where you kind of re refine your skills and, and taper off and, and just get into, into the right zone. And then a week before you, you head into, into London and you go stay in the village. Um, so we stayed in the village uh, the entire time the swimming happened. Um, my events that I was on the team for was the 4x100 freestyle. And um, that event was on day two. And then I competed on the last day in the 4x100 medley. Um, and so that was the whole seven days. And then, uh, we got the option of either leaving two days afterwards or changing our plane ticket to the end of the Olympics, but that they kind of said to us that we would have to find our own accommodation in, in that, in that space. Um, and yeah, when the swimming finished, I kind of just stayed in the village. <laughs> I stayed, we had a, we had a penthouse apartment and, uh, essentially all the swimmers left and no one was in, was in the rooms with me. So I was like, well, I'm not gonna leave the village if I don't have to. Um, so I got to stay on and go and watch all the sports. I watched uh, Usain Bolt win the 100 meter, the 200 meter and the four by 100 um, gold medal. I watched some weightlifting, some table tennis. I watched all the water polo. Um, and it was just such an amazing experience. And the the village itself is basically like its own community right so you have hairdressers in there you have a grocery store you have games rooms i mean the first day it was so funny i was i was uh playing 
uh, FIFA at, in the games room with one of my best friends, Chad Leclerc. He he actually won gold in 2012 in the Turner Flyer, and um, he actually beat Michael Phelps in the in the Turner Flyer, which is pretty funny. Um, but uh, him and I were playing FIFA, and uh, it was Barcelona and Real Madrid. And uh, we look outside, and there's Neymar and Marcelo <laughs> playing on the with, the, with those uh, those cinder blocks um, outside with their team. It was it was quite crazy, to be honest. Um, we got to see people like uh, Roy McIlroy, and um, I got I got to sit across the table from the the dream team, the U.S. basketball team, before one of their matches. And it's just crazy. I get goosebumps thinking about it right now. You know, um, yeah. What was what was a great time is uh, when the when the when the competition's finished. What you would do is you would go out with everybody and then come home in the morning at like 7 a.m. and then uh, go to the McDonald's because McDonald's is free there, and uh, and then sleep. <laughs> One of the times where I got I got back and I, I had the McDonald's and they told me that I had to go and watch the open water, but I had literally had no sleep. So I, I went from going out to McDonald's then to the open water and then came home and crashed for the rest of the day. So it was quite a great experience. Um, something you, you definitely shouldn't have taken for granted if you, if you were there. And I'm sure a lot of people don't, but yeah, it was, it was awesome. And at the, one of the highlights was for me, was actually watching the sparkles at the closing ceremony. <laughs> I never would have thought I'd be able to do that. So that's, that's a heck of an experience. And I'm sure you've got a lot of memories and a lot of photos and, and just a lot of memorabilia um, that comes with it. Like I always hear about people exchanging pins and, and whatnot and, and all that stuff and getting a chance to meet other people from other parts of the world and learning about their culture and the way that they, um, they prepare, uh, right? Like you may, you may be swimming and I'm sure you do this, at, uh, you, you found this out at other meets, but other people will prepare other, from other countries a different way than you do, have superstitions that, that are completely different. Um, and it's just yeah. everything is it's it's really cool to see all that come together because a lot of these sports, um, like say basketball for example, it's it's based in in America and the NBA and and it's all American kind of cultural norms. But but when they all come together, it's really cool for 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 different countries to to get a chance to to meet other people. Um, is the language barrier a bit of an issue? Uh, how does that work? So so yeah, um, I think uh, you touched on a, a whole lot of great points there. I think the cultural aspect was was amazing. You know, um, the changing of pins. I've still got my lanyard with probably like a hundred different pins on it. Um, and what's cool about it is uh, they have a lot of volunteers right in the village to help you with a lot of stuff. And uh, the volunteers get their own type of pins as well. So you you kind of you kind of interact with everybody, which is great. And I think the one thing that I was really lucky about and well, really lucky. Um, and the rest of the people that went to London was the language barrier wasn't too bad because everyone spoke English, you know. I think the language barrier between the different people in the countries, yes, for sure. Um, but we didn't really feel it that much because everyone else spoke English uh, in, as, as like the volunteers and in the, in the city as well, um, which was amazing. So um, the language barrier for me was, uh, was a little bit of an issue when you're trying to speak to people from like Russia or um, in Germany where they don't, or Germany, most people speak um, English in Germany. Um, but yeah, it's different. maybe like um, this, the, the Asian countries like, like China and, and Japan, a lot of them maybe don't speak English. Um, but there's a language between between sportsmen of that you know about, you know, the, the hard work and the dedication. And when you're in the pool, for example, warming up and anything like that, you kind of have that mutual respect with everybody, which is great. Um, but yeah, I think I think you touched you touched on a lot of points there. The cultural aspect for me was probably the most interesting. And 
allowed me to be able to understand a whole lot of different things about people and human psychology. Um, and it's helped me a lot with, with everything, with my, with my work, with um, relationships, everything like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the amount of effort and focus and training and discipline that it takes to be at that world-class level are definitely traits um, and, and, and skills that you can take to, to basically anything else you want to apply yourself in, in life, which is really cool. Um, I do have one last question. Uh, actually a couple of questions before we move on to, to Rocky. And I know this is a three man pod. It sounds like a two man pod right now, but we will get there. Um, <laughs> you had mentioned free McDonald's. Um, so I'm assuming all the food in the, yeah. in the village is free. Um, and uh, this kind of does explain why I, I can't remember if it's that Olympics or the Rio Olympics, uh, the rumor of Usain Bolt basically eating chicken nuggets the day of his hundred meter and then going in and just winning it. Um, as we talk about ceilings for athletic abilities, some people's ceilings are just a lot higher than others. Um, how was that yeah. food variety uh, at the village? And then the last thing I had was what was your favorite moment uh, and memory from, from the Olympics? Sure. So um yeah, the, there's a free McDonald's. Um, literally, the menu covers everything. Um, just go to the, you just go to the McDonald's and order whatever you want. You can order a hundred chicken nuggets, uh, ten Big Macs, whatever you want. Um, so that's the one aspect of it, of the hall. Um, a hall is massive as well. It's about eight football pitches. That's how big the the hall was. Um, but if you can think about the world as a as a as a whole it gets split into the continents, right? So there's like an African side where it's a lot of African cuisine, uh, Asian cuisine, um, Mediterranean, um, kind of uh, meat and 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 uh, normal, just normal food, I guess. If you can call it that, there's halal, there's vegetarian, uh, vegan food, whatever you want. Um, and you kind of have the pick of the of the bunch. You can you can kind of eat wherever you want. And what was really nice about that is you got to experience the different cultures from a food aspect as well. Um, during the meat, obviously, you're not going to be eating McDonald's because <laughs> it's not as nutritious um, as these types of foods. But yeah, I think I, I went around and tried tried everything. And yeah, it was very interesting because obviously you can go and have sushi. You can go and have um, ramen balls you can go and have uh i don't know halal chicken you can go and have um some what like yeah, whatever you want really and um and then afterwards after you're competing it's literally just full-on go for mcdonald's it actually got to a point where i had to stop eating mcdonald's because i just felt ill um and i put on quite a lot of poundage after the after the meat i think I weighed in during the competition at about 90 or 91. And by the end of the games, I was about 98. So that's in a week. <laughs> so it's crazy the amount of sodium and water retention you get from, from eating fast food, you know, and drinking as well. Because we hadn't, I, like I, I, when I was competing, I didn't drink before um, the competition, probably like six months before. And so, yeah, your whole body just gets a shock. And um, it's not it's not necessarily good for your body, but it's it's good to have a break from from that type of high intense um, diet that you're normally on. And then, yeah. sorry to follow your last question, the fa the favorite moment of the Olympics, it was when you know, my best friend, like I said, Chad Leclerc, one of my best friends, um, he beat Michael Phelps in the 200 butterfly, which was his token event um, at in in world swimming. He hadn't lost a major event in 12 years 
and Chad, I touched him at the end. Um, and the reason why it was so emotional for me was that I had been alongside Chad since we were eight years old. We trained together and I just knew how much effort and how much drive he had to win that gold. And he was the only person apart from myself and maybe a couple of others that believed he could win that medal. Um, the previous year, he finished fifth at the World Champs. Um, and uh, he had a really good run up to the meet. Um, and everything just aligned. Uh, and I remember watching him touch and I couldn't believe it. And I started crying. Um, I was actually in the stands with um, one of our, yeah, this is also kind of like a plug, but um, I used to train with uh, the Princess of Monaco, who is Charlene, uh, Princess Charlene. And um, we were in the stands and when he won and he, he received his medal, I just like burst out crying. And she was the one that came and hugged me. And uh, it was a really, really cool moment. Um, and that him winning and, and experiencing that and knowing that he's one of my best friends to, to go there and experience that with him was probably the best moment for me. That's really awesome. And that's just a, it's not that moment per se, but it's just the lead up all the way from when you were eight years old, as you were saying, all the way to that moment and the culmination of everything and all the blood, sweat and tears to get to that moment uh, is, is really, really cool. Um, and, and it's really awesome to be able to talk to a former Olympian and to get your perspective and your experience. Um, and, and man, it's a lot of things. Uh, it's, it's something that a lot of people will never experience. Right. And never really understand. And, um, and, and there's no, yeah. like literally getting to the games is an accomplishment in and of itself. And, and I think that's something that, um, that I'm sure you look back on now, not at the time, but you look back on now being like, holy smokes, this is something, as you said earlier, this is something that I did, yeah. something that my kids, my grand, my grandkids will be talking about for, for basically as long as they live. Right. Just really. Yeah. Really I think, the, I think the, the funniest thing for me was like the hard work that I put in and, and, and kind of, um, my, my, my actual competing at the Olympics, I didn't do a best time, which is pretty funny. Um, but luckily I got to experience everything else. You know, um, I was able to kind of off the back of that, for the next two years train exceptionally hard and and, and way outperform myself from the olympics um before i retired so as for me i like the years following olympics the olympics was like the starting point to me getting better um it was an experience point for me um obviously you want to go to the olympics and do your best time but like you said before a lot of people don't because of the pressure or just because their body's not in the correct shape or the right the right shape it should be um and a lot of people get in their own heads. So um, for me, it was the starting point um, to get to another level. Um, my best my best meet was actually two years after that um, at the Commonwealth Games. And um, thereafter, it got to a stage where you, you kind of have these ideas that you want to achieve. And once you achieve them, you're like, what is the next point, you know? And so, yeah, like I said before, I didn't really compete um, to well, I didn't really compete to my personal best, but I got to compete, which is what you're saying is it's, it's something that a lot of people won't get to do. And you have to be grateful for that, you know, and like I said, I, I was really grateful to experience everything else that I got to that I got to see. Um, so, yeah, it was it was crazy. It was amazing. For sure. And it's like a lot of people are just so focused on, especially if you're an Olympian, focused on trying to get a medal or trying to do your personal best. But just getting there is an accomplishment in and of itself. And, and like you had just said, 
the Olympics are every four years and a lot of people aren't in their physical primes when, or, or their actual career prime when, when the Olympics come around. And even just thinking about these Tokyo Olympics, if they actually happened last year, how many of these medals would have been different because somebody was just at the end of their prime or just getting into their prime versus now, or somebody who was coming off an injury that got an extra, uh, whatever it was, 12 months to, to train and, and, to, and to heal. It's just a lot of times because it is every four years, the timing of how it, how it happens isn't always the best for everybody and doesn't always represent um, the best in that era or, or whatnot. So it's pretty cool that and, and yeah, awesome that you brought exactly. I think, yeah, I think, I think like you, exactly what you say, um, a moment in history, a moment in your, in your career doesn't necessarily define you. Um, but if you, the true the true amazing olympians and the true amazing athletes are able to perform at any level at any time um and you know like if you are able to do that at the olympics then and everything aligns for you then that's amazing but if it doesn't you know like i said it doesn't really define you as a person doesn't really define you as an athlete um and i think that's the point like you say at the Tokyo Olympics, you know, if you got COVID, you, that's you, that's, that's you gone. So um, everything had to align. You, you had to make sure you weren't getting ill. You had to make sure that you were, you're getting the right nutrition at the right point in time. So much pressure goes into that point. And you train for four years for literally one minute of your life. Um, so that, that shouldn't necessarily define you as a person, but those, those champions that are able to step up and, and, and perform when asked are the ones that that i always look up to yeah yeah i totally agree and i think even even if you did perform in that moment i don't think sports should define you as a person right because at some point um you're going to outlive being at the peak of your physical performance in a sport and then at that point you're lost basically trying to find yourself and and trying to reinvent yourself um so so definitely uh that that's a fantastic point uh, moving on to Rocky and <laughs> his turn to finally get a chance to speak. Um, uh, let, let's hear about your, uh, the app, the wine app that you work at. I, I think the first time you brought it up in the discord, uh, me and my fiance actually downloaded it. And now we put, or I guess we scan literally every bottle of wine that, that we drink, um, into it. Um, we are fortunate enough to live in a somewhat, I guess, uh, nice wine area, um, we do have, uh, I live in Vancouver, Canada. We do have the Okanagan, which is about Kelowna and all that area, about a, a three hour drive from where I am. Um, and actually last year, actually two years ago, actually last year um, during COVID, um, when, when we opened up a bit, I, I got a chance to go up there and just do a, a bunch of wine tours. Um, and it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, beautiful that we grow a lot of uh, grapes up there. But uh, tell me a bit about the, the wine app, how it works and uh, how you got into it. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, glad that, you know, that word of mouth marketing work got you on the app. <laughs> um, but it's it's pretty simple concept. Uh, it started because uh, our founder was interested in wine, um, but he didn't have uh, great wine knowledge. Most people don't, right? And there are so many regions around the world. There's so many grapes. It's a very complex topic, which is why you can put, you know, hundreds or thousands of thousands of hours into studying it and still have a ton more to learn. Um, and so in his head, he was like, okay, smartphones are becoming much more prevalent. You know, the technology is better. We have cameras on them. And it was, okay, how can we leverage this technology to help people learn about wine and find a wine that's a good fit for them? Um, and so essentially he thought, okay, if I can take a photo of a wine label when I'm in a wine shop and upload it to the internet, 
um, and use you know image recognition technology to identify what it is, um, that could help somebody guide their buying decision. Um, and so that's kind of the core of it, right? You can take a photo, it pulls up more information on the wine that's actually crowdsourced. So it's what other users have rated it. It's not critic ratings. Um, and so you see what common consumers, you know, like yourself might think about a wine. And from there, you can see their ratings, reviews and decide if you want to buy it. Um, and that's how it started. Now there's, you know, a marketplace component. There's 18 countries that the marketplace is live in. I um, mean, it's the, the world's largest wine marketplace on its own. Um, and, you know, it's really cool because you do see other users on the app rating wines. You can add them as your friends. So there is kind of a social dynamic to it as well. Um, so it helps you find a wine that you're interested in, identify if it's something you're going to like, and then you can buy it, you know, if you're in that wine store after you scan it, or you can also buy a lot of wines online, depending on the country you're in. Yes. And the, I believe the app is called Vivino, right? Yes, um, yes, and and you can download it on, <laughs> you can download it on the app store. Is there a desktop component to it as well? Yeah. So there's a, you know, you can go to Vivino.com as well. Um, and there's slightly different experiences. More people use the website to buy wine and to shop um, versus, you know, a lot of people that are using the app or just using it to scan a photo of a label. Um, but yeah, you can find it on either. Um, and, you know, I guess the second part of your question was how did I get into it? Um, and it's just, I've, I've been into wine since before I could legally drink it, which is weird. Um, I remember, you know, I was in a basic cooking class in high school um, where we kind of just it, you know, it wasn't very like formal. She was like, all right, we're going to try, try to create this style of dish today. And she just gave you a ton of ingredients. So you could kind of go wild, uh, made some horrible food, made some somewhat okay stuff. But one day she brought in somebody that was a chef at a restaurant near us. And he was talking about food and wine pairings. Um, and I was like, okay, that's really cool. You know, in food and when you're making a dish, you have all these different components um, that can come together to create something really delicious. And in wine, it's kind of the same thing where you'll have different you know, flavor and aroma profiles, different structural components like the acidity, the alcohol, if there's any sweetness, uh, things along those lines. And then you can actually you know, look to food and say, okay, this wine tastes like this. It has these structural components. And then this dish has these flavors, you know, these structural components, and you can combine them. And that was really fascinating to me. Um, so at that point, I borrowed a wine textbook from my high school teacher who was, you know, like, okay, sure, you can have this. Um, and started reading it. My parents were like, all right, who is this kid? He's 18. He's reading a wine textbook. Um, and I don't know, it just was really fascinating to me. And so got really into wine. And then once I got into the, um, you know, into my profession, I definitely wanted to do something in wine. And I'd been using this app since I was, you know, like 18 or so. Um, and at that point, I basically was like, all right, you know, if I want to work in the wine industry, I think this is the best place to do it. You know, it's very revolutionary. Um, you know, it's, you know, kind of on the cutting edge of what is going on in the wine industry, because the wine industry often lags quite a bit um, from a technological standpoint. And so, yeah, I just got in this job and, you know, it's going well, really like it. Awesome. And uh, how long have you been there and what is your, or what, what do you do there? Yeah, so a little under two years at this point. Um, and so I'm on the US uh, sponsorship team. So essentially, we work with wineries and wine regions to help them share their story with users um, and to help them, you know, explain, okay, this is what, what our wine is. Here's like where it comes from. You know, here's our philosophy when it comes to grape growing or winemaking and give them a sense of place and understanding. So the way I always like to frame it when I'm speaking with wineries is, you know, we're providing a digital winery visit-like experience to wine lovers, Vivino users around the world. Um, and I think that kind of explains it in a very short format version. Yeah, I think the, the app is absolutely fantastic. 
Um, I, as I said before, I use it a lot. Um, I, I take, I scan it and then it kind of gives you uh, a, a lot of user reviews as to what this might taste like, right? Whether it's got a little bit of a smoky taste to it or it tastes like different fruits. Um, so it does, it is very helpful. Um, obviously I'm not that big of a wine enthusiast to the point where I can really distinctly tell um, the different types of scents and the, and the flavors to it. Um, sometimes it, it lists fruits. Um, I think like one of the more common ones is lychee. My fiance has never even had lychee before, so she wouldn't even know what that would taste like. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, which, which is why, I mean, one of my first intros and, and, and a guy that, that, that I follow really closely is, is Gary Vaynerchuk. And he talks about how he grew up in the, in the wine industry working for his dad, winelibrary.com. And he used to do videos on YouTube where he talked about tasting wines and sampling wines and, and, and describing them in ways that people would understand. Um, and I think this app gets very close to that. Uh, I think for some of the wines, it even tells you what it's best paired with uh, in foods like you had talked about before. Um, so, so I think uh, if anybody is interested in wines or even if you're a casual drinker to just download the app and just scan some of the bottles that, that you have at home, scan some at the liquor store. And it, and it does help you decide because when I do get to the liquor store, one of the uh, like I'm very lost in terms of what I'm trying to find. Uh, and generally it's just red or white wine. But if you kind of do that one step further and start scanning bottles, you'll find that you might find something that you like and, and within the price range that, that you feel appropriate. Do you do a lot of wine studying still? You talked about wine textbooks, but are you a big uh, wine spectator guy? I know that's the most popular and the, and the biggest uh, biggest organization out there that's rating wines. Do you do a lot of that research? And if you do, are there some... Uh, things that you can tell the casual person to, to take a look at um, to try to learn more about wine? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I am actively studying wine. Um, you know, there's a couple different like formalized ways or programs through which you can get certifications, take tests. Um, and, you know, definitely nobody ever needs to do those unless they either want to for fun to challenge themselves or, you know, if they're in the industry, it can be helpful. Um, you know, you can just learn about wine. I think the best way is just actually trying it. But when you try wine, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you can look to any country, right? Spain and say, okay, I want to try some of Spain's major regions. Um, and you can just quickly Google that. Wine Folly is a really great resource. Um, it's not, it's not like rating focused, like Wine Spectator. Um, I think that's one of my favorite, just like casual learning websites. Um, and, you know, it'll tell you, okay, here are the top, you know, regions in Spain or here are like the regions you have to try around the world. And, you know, getting a bottle from, let's say, Rioja in Spain, you try it. But instead of just drinking it, um, you know, you should drink it and enjoy it and have fun. But actually taking a moment to think about, okay, like, what is this experience like? What am I tasting? I um, you know, what do I smell in the glass? Um, and that you kind of start to build a muscle memory surrounding it. And then, you know, first, when I got into wine, I was like, okay, it seems like a lot of BS. People are like, oh, I get, you know, roses and a hint of tar as well. It was like dusty leaves. Um, but the more you start tasting, especially if you get to taste with someone who is, you know, extremely knowledgeable, like a master psalm, um, they start, you know, explaining why you're actually smelling these, the chemical processes involved in, you know, creating these esters, these different chemical compounds. And you're like, okay, so that actually is in the glass. You know, it, these chemicals are present and, you know, you might pick them up more readily or not, depending on your experience. But, you know, trying wines from different regions, taking a moment to think about what you're smelling, what you're tasting, and, you know, just trying to remember that, internalize it. Um, I think that's the best way to approach it. Um, I kind of did a side, you know, long answer there. Um, and that the other component of the question that I didn't um, touch on in terms of my personal studies, I'm doing this program called um, WSET. There's kind of two main programs that are available 
um, in the US, you can go through the quartermaster Psalms where you hear about, you know, that movie Psalm and like Master Psalm is. And then there's the WSET. Um, different WSET is more academically focused, I should say. Um, so you still do all the blind tasting, um, but it's a ton, a ton of like reading when you do a lot of writing, like even research papers. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. It's extremely challenging, way harder than college was for me at this point. Um, but I like it, you know, it makes me continually learn, right? And I think it's important to, you know, even after school, learn about new stuff, which is why, you know, wine's one thing that I'm constantly studying. And the other thing is crypto. That's, you know, like this new, newer found passion of wine, at least for me. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. Um, a lot of people think that education stops after, I guess, formal education in school in the school schooling system. But uh, I mean, that just basically means at that point after that, you're able to dive deeper into subjects that you're actually passionate about, not having to do prerequisites and not having to do electives or, or whatever courses that, that you're going to need just for the sake of actually needing something to, to get a degree. So that's a fantastic point. Um, I actually just Googled this too. Wine Folly is uh, wine and then F-O-L-L-Y.com. If anybody's interested, I know me and my fiance will probably end up checking that out after this podcast. Um, uh, one last question about wine. What is your favorite type of wine? That's hard. I, I get that one a lot. Um, I really love good aged Barolo, which is a region in Northern Italy. Um, you know, it's hundred percent Nebbiolo is the grape. And one great thing about Italy is that you get, you know, there's, I think there's over 300 grapes that are native to Italy, which people kind of debate about. But regardless, you get all these grapes that, that are almost only grown there. You know, you'll find other places growing some of them in small quantities, but it's these unique grapes to make wines that, you know, you aren't going to get elsewhere. Like in the U.S., Napa, right, is Cabernet, which is, you know, very famous in France as well, these international grapes. And it's grown in South Africa, you know, it's grown up in um, Canada even too in some places. And, you know, it's grown everywhere. But in Italy, you get, you know, Barolo made from Nebbiolo, and they are so good at producing it, you know, what they're famous for. And these wines, they're expensive, which, you know, especially for a good one that's like super delicious and intense in flavor and aroma. But when they age a little bit, you know, if you buy like a hundred, $130 bottle of that from good producer, let it age 10, 15 years, they are like something that will just blow your mind and you'll never have had anything that tastes like it. Uh, actually, I've, I've got a question on that because you did go uh, with something more European um, and you did talk about how your experience and, and, and your job nature is in the U.S. market. Um, is in terms of if I'm looking for a wine that's more domestic and domestic talking about North America, is it still the Napa Valley region? Um, I did read, I, I want to say maybe like a couple of years ago about how the, the East Coast and more specifically kind of the New Jersey area is trying to um, to develop a lot of wine um, and, and get their reputation. Um, is, is it still Napa Valley right now that's, that's in the lead? So, I, I mean... I believe almost every state or every state has at least a small amount of wine production at this point. I knew that Hawaii had like pineapple wine, but one of my buddies the other day was telling me that they're actually growing grapes now, like a pie, like high elevation because it's cooler on one of the volcano slopes. I'm like, okay, I didn't know that. Um, so every, you know, I'd say every state has a teeny bit of production. Um, most places aren't good for growing wine. You know, the, the, mac or sorry, the environment, you know, the temperature, the soil, it's just not like, conducive to growing good quality grapes, right? You know, you can get by and make some stuff. Um, I wouldn't buy anything really from the East Coast. There are some good examples on the East Coast, but it's like few and far between, right? There's some great wine. In general, if you want a safe bet, I just go with more established regions on the West Coast, especially, um, you know, like Washington and Oregon are making phenomenal wine. 
uh, Napa Valley's brand name, right? So, you know, you're going to be paying more. Um, like the vineyards there cost so much money, right? Everything costs more money. So the wine's more expensive. Is it worth the extra cost? That's up to you to decide. I like to kind of look, go to the lesser known regions. Um, so like in Washington, you know, like Walla Walla, there's a ton of subregions all over there that are delicious. Uh, Pinot Noir from Oregon is amazing. And then in California, I actually like the Central Coast more than Napa. Um, so kind of like Santa Barbara County, Santa Inez, that area. Um, but yeah, I mean, I in general, I'd stay to California, Washington, and Oregon if you're buying U.S. wines. Awesome. Awesome. I'm definitely going to have to make a trip to the liquor store and, and take a look at that and, and some of the suggestions that you've got there. Um, let's switch gears here. And, and, and the reason why I've got you guys both on the podcast, obviously, this is a very crypto specific podcast, more reserve specific as it is. But I always like to, before we get to that point, I like to ask you guys, how did you guys get into crypto and what was your first introduction to it? Because a lot of people have some really, really interesting stories as to how they first heard about, and it's generally Bitcoin. Bitcoin is usually the one that people most hear about first. Um, so if you guys both don't mind sharing, how did you guys both learn and, and get into crypto? Who wants to go so first? I got into, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go. Um, so I think I mentioned before when I did the introduction, I got into crypto in 2017. It was kind of at the heart of where Bitcoin was. It was around 14,000, I think. Um, it was just before it's like rise to 20K. Um, and obviously being in South Africa, um, the RAND is kind of, I think it was 20, oh no, 15 RAND per $1. So if you think about Bitcoin, it's probably like 200,000 RAND per Bitcoin. Um, so I put a little bit of money in just to get involved, had no idea what it was about. Um, I just heard this, all this hype about this thing going to a million dollars. And um, and yeah, I uh, was got in for a little while and I saw it crashing and sold, to be honest. Um, and then once you once you get in the industry, you, you kind of never get out, I feel. I feel like you, you want to just try and understand it, try and picture how things are going to work out. And, and so from that point onwards, I did a lot of research. I did a lot of investigating, fundamental analysis. Um, yeah, my first two coins I invested in were um, Bitcoin and Ethereum, obviously. Um, so being in the industry for a little while, um, but it was kind of a very sad project for me. Like a, it was just something to invest a little bit of time in, as well as finishing off um, my um, accounts qualifications. So um, once that happened, um, we moved over to, to London and um, yeah, kind of, kept track of the market and, and watched everything go down and then I, and then when it got to the COVID time when when there was that massive crash down to 3k um i got involved again i was i was really interested in getting bitcoin at that point um but as far as old coins i kind of stayed away from everything until um summer of 2020 um and interesting story is my first altcoin i bought was rsr um, and the only reason I bought RSR was because I heard Peter Thiel was an investor. It wasn't because I was doing like heaps of analysis on it, but uh, I saw that RSR was going to be a sort of solution to inflation and uh, something that would eventually work as a stable coin peg to purchasing power. And I thought, wow, that is something that a lot of people will get behind. And so I invested. And uh, yeah. That's where everything started for me. 
Awesome. Do you remember a specific point in time or like the first thing you saw that introduced you to Bitcoin? Was it like some type of advertisement, something on the internet, a friend talking about it? It was a newspaper article. Um, I think it was on Bloomberg. Um, the first one I read, Bitcoin was 3000 And then literally, I think it was like two months later, it went to 15000 or something crazy. And I was like, wow, I better buy some so that I can be a part of this, this hub train. And uh, it, it was one of my first investment experiences. So I had invested in stocks before, um, but in terms of cryptocurrency, um, I saw that there were a whole bunch of them. Like I think there was XRP and Ethereum and and, um, and a, a couple of others. Um, but I saw that Bitcoin and Ethereum were at the top and I was like, well, maybe I should put a little bit of money into both, you know? Um, and yeah, when you when you at that level, you don't understand the market. If, as soon as you see price going down, you're like you panic and you buy and you sell, and then you want to buy more and you sell, and then when you want to more and you sell, and eventually, the more the more you're in the market, you realize you know this market is is a long term uptrend. It's it's something that's going to be, in my opinion, adopted widely in the next 20 years or next 10 to 20 years, and um, uh, yeah, so you kind of have to take a step back and not look at the charts too much and just kind of believe in the fundamental value of what you're investing in. And as soon as you lose that fundamental value um, aspect of your investment is when you should sell. Um, and a lot of the time I try and tell people um, that, I've, that I've been speaking to about, about crypto and about different projects is the, the human aspect of it, the market kind of movements um, and market psychology um, doesn't necessarily peg to what the value of a project is. I mean, I did analysis on a project the other day where if you look at a PE ratio, it was at like, it should, the, the market cap should have been probably like 500 million. And the market cap was at like 20 million because people had just sold it into the ground um, because they were panicking. And if you look at a fundamental aspect of a project and you believe in its value, then you should only sell when you need to. You don't need. You shouldn't sell just because everyone else is selling. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I learned in that whole in that whole um, two years. I was in. I was kind of getting involved with Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then moving on to the altcoin market as well. Yeah, that's definitely a fantastic point because obviously coming from stocks, um, you're not used to that type of volatility, right? The volatility in crypto is absolutely ridiculous that the first time you see it go up and down like mm -hmm. that, you panic and you're like, holy smokes, what is going on? And, and you're just like, am I going to zero here? <laughs> like, how does, how is this going to work? So, so you panic and sell. Um, but, yeah. but you're right. As, uh, and, and I try to think about that with altcoins, especially now um, is that if, if you're not willing to hold on to and you don't see the long-term premise of it. And the second that the price dips, you panic because you're, you don't want to hold on to it. Um, then you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be owning it in the first place. And, and so that's a, that's a fantastic point. Uh, Rocky, how did you get into crypto and what was your first experience like? Yeah. Yeah. So I was one of those people who was told about Bitcoin really early on. Uh, my buddy who was like, you know, that like hacker computer kid, I don't think he was actually a hacker, but he's just super into computers, um, was telling me about Bitcoin. I remember it was like, like 130 bucks. Um, and I was young then he was like, dude, just buy some. He's like, some people think this is going to like 10 K. And I was like, Wait, what do you mean? I was trying to wrap my head around it. And he told me about some website to buy it on. But I remember there was, it was so janky back then. Like, I think it was like almost over the counter. I, I can't even remember. It was too long ago. 
but I was trying to buy, it's like, okay, you have to like, you could trade a gift card for a Bitcoin or like you could, you know, like load up money, but then it could take like days and days and days for you to actually be able to get that Bitcoin. And it was all too confusing to me. I was like, okay, you know, like this is weird. Didn't buy it, obviously, which I had. Um, that being said, you know, like would I still be holding it? Probably not. Like I would have sold it when it went to 1K, that's my guess. Um, so learned about it then. Um, then I didn't really get back into crypto until um, last summer. So summer 2020, you know, I had my eye on it. I knew some friends were buying Bitcoin in 2017, some Ethereum. Um, I was reading up, up on it then, but things were up so high. I was in college, didn't really have much disposable income to put in anyway. So I'm like, you know, I'll take a pass. Then uh, last summer, um, my buddy was telling me about Chainlink. He's like, all right, you got it, buy some Chainlink. You know, this thing performing phenomenally. I think it was at like four bucks. Um, I put in, you know, a couple thousand dollars and that was right before it like mooned up to like $20. And that kind of hooked me right there. Um, more than the technology, more than understanding what it did, I was like, you know, I just put a few thousand and in like three weeks that felt like it was at, you know, many, many multiples higher. I was like, all right, this is interesting. There's something here. Um, and that's when I started looking into other projects and actually started studying it. You know, like, okay, what's going on here? Like, I don't understand this. I just blindly followed my friend's advice for Chainlink. Um, and that's when I stumbled upon Reserve, which I focused 100% on accumulating that um, basically from you know, August of last year until um, I think just about Christmas, I put every dollar I could every paycheck. Um, and then obviously now I've been buying some other things. So I'm not just all in one coin, but it's still, you know, the majority of my portfolio. Um, definitely love RSR. <laughs> how did you, how did you guys come across it? Or like, what was your first experience with it? I know Leith was saying that um, he invested in it because Peter Thiel is in it. Um, but like, did you, again, same question, did you guys come across it in like a newspaper or like somebody on Twitter or, or what, what was it? Uh, for me, it was Twitter. So um, I started like, to me, the best, the best sources of information, although you have to vet them quite often is, is Twitter because there's so many people tweeting and sharing information momentarily after things happen. I feel like it's even more, uh, viable than a newsfeed, you know, and um, so one of the people that I followed was doing TA on RSR, and um, I think it had just gone to it had just gone to three cents, and then there was that drop of DeFi in summer 2020. Just before, I think it was between August and September, there was like that big drop where it dropped below one cent, and I saw it hit the I think it was the 200 EMA on the on that on that, and it was trading below. 200 EMA for around two days or so. I was like, well, let me look at this. Let me have a look at this actual coin because I've only been in Bitcoin and Ethereum since I've started. Maybe there's another aspect of it. And then I saw when it had been launched, it was at 0 0.002 or 0.001 when it was in March 2020. And um, I was like, wow, this thing actually went up 30x. Um, maybe it's possible that it's at a level where it can kind of regain some strength. And so I put I put literally probably three quarters of my um, my liquid capital into that, and um, the only reason I put it in was because obviously I saw that Peter Thiel was involved, and I kind of try to understand the message that they were trying to achieve or the objective that they were trying to achieve, and the also the um, not network effects but the uh, the growth of the the the, the amount of XD, um, the the amount of RSR in wallets. Um, had improved 
quite significantly over the point in time from when it was at its bottom. And I was like, wow, okay, obviously the adoption is happening um, amongst the crypto community, that there's still the need for it to be adopted worldwide. Um, but they had, uh, they had the app going, they had a whole lot of different things going for them. And I was like, well, it seems like a pretty safe investment to at least get to back, back to its all time high. Um, so I invested in it and just been following it from then. Um, and yeah, so that's how I got, it was basically from Twitter. Um, a lot of my information that I get is actually from Twitter once it gets vetted, obviously. Rocky. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that same friend who told me about Chainlink, um, you know, his buddy who told him about RSR basically. So it's all, you know, it's this word of mouth. Um, and at that point, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to look into it. My other friend said, you got to get on crypto Twitter. Um, he's like, you know, if you're getting into crypto, like that's a great place. You know, there's a ton of BS. There's so many shills, like copy paste shills everywhere. But, you know, if you follow the right people and, you know, you vet your information that way, as well as just, you know, learning how to have a crazy filter and block out most of it, you can find some good stuff. So I started like looking up, you know, the cash tag RSR, um, followed a bunch of people, I think yourself as well. Um, and I think I hopped in the discord, you know, like a couple weeks after it was launched um, at that point. And that was like my first time having like a feel of a crypto community, right? Everyone was talking about it. I learned so much right away being on the discord, um, you know, like had read the white paper a couple times. I'm like, this seems like it's going to work. Um, so I guess it was word of mouth. Um, and then really got into it and started putting a lot of money once I got into Discord and, you know, doing my due diligence. Yeah, and that's a good point about um, getting your information from Twitter. Um, I do as well. I think crypto Twitter is fantastic. Uh, but there's also a side of it that's just absolutely terrible. And I think one of the things that you do need to keep in mind when you are following somebody is just go through all of their um, their Twitter feed, or I guess their, their posts. And if all they're doing is just giving a price target and, and saying that a certain coin is going to go to this price, um, I kind of stay as far away from that as possible. Um, if they're not providing any reasons why or any technical analysis or anything, um, any, any long-term premise. And then if it's just bullish all the time, I'd also avoid that as well, because every project that's just starting out, there's always going to be some type of negative aspect to it or some type of risk associated with it. And if they're not acknowledging that risk or, or, the, or the reasons why a certain project may fail and acknowledging that, um, I'd also stay away from that as well. Um, and uh, I hope, I hope Leith, when you say that you're vetting all of these people that you're not basing it on cartoon characters or cartoon animals, because both Rocky and myself <laughs> are, are both of that. Uh, as, and, and I think that's one of the, uh, the, the best things about crypto. Um, and this is actually very interesting right now. Um, people obviously listening to this don't know, but uh, this is the first time I've ever done a video um, podcast. Um, so this is one of the, the rare times that, that people in the crypto community actually know what I look like. And I know what some of the people in the crypto community look like. Um, but, but I think one of the, one of the best things about crypto and, and we'll get to diamond Atlas actually next, um, but space, uh, space 10X as, as he's known in the discord, um, he will do whatever it takes for absolutely zero trail of what he looks like or who he is. And I think that's one of the best things, but he's also one of the most knowledgeable guys in the discord, providing a lot of knowledge on, on certain projects and what he feels about, about certain things in crypto. I think one of the best things about crypto is that um, you can be anonymous um, and and still be able to have that presence and and to be knowledgeable about things. Um, and, and I think Twitter is definitely the best place to, to get a lot of your information. Um, speaking about Diamond Atlas, um, can one of you guys give me an overview of what it is? Um, how did it come together? What your philosophy, values, mission are? And uh, how did it get latched onto reserve and, and, and reserve being one of your, your, I guess, your guys' biggest investments? Yeah, so um, 
what can I was talking about this earlier. Um, and there's, there's kind of a lot of negative connotation around venture capital funds and, and, and big investment kind of holders of different projects, you know, the pump and dump schemes and, and everything like that. And when, when we kind of thought about sort of starting this type of investment arm, we wanted to change that perception. Um, you know, as a, as a charter accountant, one of the, one of the biggest kind of, uh, well, ethics that we have to follow is integrity and, um, and, and being able to be honest in the way that you go about your profession. And that shouldn't be different just because we're in a different industry. You know, um, I think the regu the regulatory aspect of crypto is the reason why, or the lack thereof, is the reason why these kind of firms are able to get away with a lot of the stuff that they're doing. Um, and so one of the things that we wanted to focus on was integrity, um, adding value and, qual and quality, um, collaboration and transparency with, with the community. Um, those are the four core pillars of our, our, of our sort of company and our mission is basically to to ensure that our stakeholders are in the best possible position given the fact that we are providing certain content that we are giving certain opinions on various projects and um, they're in the best possible position to take ownership of their own journey and we are hoping that that will be through web3 and the crypto industry um, because we do feel that Web3 is the next logical stage in the evolution. Um, and the fact that Web2 came through and basically it came through like a whirlwind and there wasn't much happening where there wasn't much pushback from any of the kind of stakeholders in, involved with that. And which is hence the reason why there's a lot of centralized issues. There's a lot of privacy issues and People don't really have control over their own, their own data anymore. And the privacy aspect is what we're trying to preach. We're trying to say, say, you know, these big companies, these big kind of behemoths don't necessarily, well, shouldn't necessarily control what and, and what, what and who you are about. And we want to preach that the power should be given back to the people and kind of distributed in a, in a broader sense. Um, and so what our mission is, is to align with projects that share our same vision, the sustainability of the, of the industry, the evolution of Web3, and for us to add value to that industry. Our, our main objective is first to create value, and inherently that should um, ensure that wealth is created, whether it be for us, whether it be for our community, and like I said, we'll be transparent and open in any way, shape or form that we can. Fantastic overview. Um, how did you guys come about this idea and, and how, how many members are, are part of that founding team and, and how did you guys uh, go about coming together to, to do this? And I know um, for those of you guys listening, uh, it's gonna be in the show notes, but if you wanna check out their, their Telegram channels, um, absolutely fantastic. Um, they're huge on a lot of the, uh, the projects that that we talk about quite a bit in the reserve discord and and they also provide a lot of information um, and and value that way so um, please check the disc or the the show notes uh, to take a look and, and see their telegram channels and, and to join but um, going back to that first question how did you guys come about um, and, and and found this thing 
So I think I think the the thing was we 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 all shared a similar view on on um, on how we would want to change the kind of perception of a group of people that were trying to add value to the industry. Um, at the moment, there are four members of the team, um, but we we go across a whole different variety of professional services, wh whether it be in financial. Um, product management, uh, content creation, um, graphic design, um, strategy, anything like that. Um, we've all our members have been in those specific traditional industries for quite a while and being able to kind of um, leverage that into the new industry of Web3 and, and crypto, um, we want to be able to create that structure um, and yeah, we, we just came about the idea and we just we kind of all gel, you know, it's it, it's it's kind of like a learning process where you're trying to understand who you're working with and who you can trust. Because like you say, there's a whole lot, the whole, whole lot of people in the industry that are anonymous or, or untrustworthy that that we've seen it obviously in the last couple of months with all the rug pulls that happen with with um, with people just throwing money at projects because they think they're going to get 100x or whatever it may be. And I think that whole dynamic and that and that being able to trust who you're working with and and being it's more about action than what people are going to say about things. You know, if people are able to action what they say, um, you you are able to put as much effort as you as you can to ensure that you together are able to achieve your objectives. I don't know if Rocky wants to add to that, maybe. Yeah, and kind of along the same lines. You know, I think a lot of us had a similar outlook on cryptocurrency, on uh, decentralized ledger technology and on Web 3.0 and how it's going to change the world. Um, and, you know, we're obviously parts of the community ourselves. We're very passionate about crypto in general. Um, so, you know, we came together, we said, okay, we see um, some issues with the industry right now. You know, one being that there's a ton of for bad information. People don't know how to sort through this information and find really solid projects. And so, you know, it's kind of through this similar view on the industry, on crypto that we said, okay, you know, there appears to be challenges. We wanna help the crypto community find and understand what we believe to be top projects that we have personal stake in, that we have in the stake in for Diamond Atlas um, and to, you know, then communicate, okay, here's what we think of these projects. Here's why, give people news updates, you know, but also work alongside with these projects, like Leith was saying, um, where, you know, it's not just, okay, we want to invest in them. We want to work with them every step of the way, provide value, help them accomplish their goals. If we believe that, you know, they are an excellent project that's able to accomplish this and really change the world. Um, so I think, you know, it's kind of just my perspective on things. I think, I think what you guys are doing is, is absolutely fantastic. And I think there needs to be more um, companies out there with your guys's mission and, and values. Because um, as Leith was saying earlier, there's a lot of projects out there that um, are a little shady and, and end up stealing a lot of people's money, right? A lot of people's hard-earned money that, that they put into these projects. Some of them is to their own fault because they're, they're all trying to get into this next thing to, to get rich quickly. Um, as Rocky was saying earlier, when you see, when you put in a couple thousand dollars into something and it goes 10X or whatever, you're more willing and inclined to put that money into something else that you hear is going to go 100X next. And, and before you know it, you're, you're not, you're, you're getting tricked and, and you're getting rug pulled and losing all that money. But I think there's, there's a lot of, 
legitimate um, businesses and a legitimate companies out there trying to build uh, a project that that can provide a lot of tremendous value um, to the world in three years and five years and 10 years. And these projects just need help with certain things because they just don't have the manpower or they're not at the point where they're able to do a lot of these things to even get the word out. And, and they need those, they need that help in order to separate themselves um, from these other projects. Uh, before we move on to kind of what you guys, uh, what Diamond Atlas is invested in in terms of specific projects and Reserve being one of them, um, can one of you guys provide an explanation? You guys brought this up a lot. What Web 3.0 is? Because I know there's a lot of listeners out there who are very casual crypto um, enthusiasts um, and, and they might not necessarily know what Web 2.0 is versus Web 3.0 and the difference and, and what Web 3.0 entails. If one of you guys could give a quick overview and maybe explain it to to me, like I'm five years old or something like that, um, that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's another thing we, we do. We make sure that's like at, at the core of our, of our understanding is to ensure that the understanding of, of web three is, is out there. Right. So if you, if you take it along a timeline, web one, obviously the internet, um, as and when it started, um, obviously massive innovation, uh, changing the world, basically. Um, moving on to Web 2, where it was like kind of a, the social dynamic of the internet, right? The Facebooks, the, uh, the MySpace, the, I don't know, any, anything that's like kind of like social media. Um, and in saying that, it's also the, the kind of dissemination of everyone's data. So everyone kind of was, in order to participate in Web 2, um, it was all about collecting data and, and, and eventually got to a point where all of the personal data that was, was, was in Web2 was um, at this point where it was centralized, right? It, it was held by specific entities um, and there wasn't that much, um, there, was that, there wasn't decentralization. There was, there was kind of just where big data and, and there wasn't, the, control or ownership of privacy, right? Web3 is something that is going to decentralize that and provide privacy and anonymity and basically give power back to those individuals that are that are running the whole in the whole um, industry. But that's kind of how I look at it from a personal aspect. Yeah, and then, you know, just a little um something to add on there. I think, you know, from web one, it was, you know, static web pages and it was, you know, you could view these and they were much more informational or you film for informational purposes. And then with web two, you know, like Lee was saying, it's okay. There's a social aspect um, that comes in, right? And it's a lot of user generated content. So you see that on YouTube, on Instagram, right? But when users are putting out this content, um, and, you know, involving themselves in the social component of the internet, they were basically given no choice but to give up their privacy and their rights to that data and information. And we just all accepted that. Okay, you know, I want to use Facebook, click accept terms and conditions, and that's that. You don't have a choice, right? And I think that's a huge issue that was brushed under the rug and no one even thought about. I didn't personally think about it, really. But then more and more frequently now, and this is becoming much more of a hot topic and people are like, okay, you know, Facebook was just selling our data. Some people don't care. They still use Facebook. Um, but overall, I think there is a movement towards wait, you know, this is my information. This is my content. Why should I be giving it freely 
to a third party, to this, you know, to this intermediary, Facebook, whoever it might be, and then allowing them to monetize it and use it for whatever purpose they might want to, right? Um, and I think that there's really a paradigm shift happening with Web3. It's already starting to happen. It's going to take some time for everyone to get on board. But if you had the option to say, okay, you know, I have control over all my data. I have control over, you know, how it can be used. It's mine, right? And I can put it online, but this is mine and I can do with it what I want. I think that's important and that's a shift that will happen. Um, and so, you know, with from web one to web two, you know, there's a social component. And I think another important innovation layer was cloud computing and how a lot of this hardware that used to be um, in, you know, personal computers went to these basically data centers. And so a lot of that um, came in as a part of web 2.0 and kind of a significant innovation. Um, and then, you know, another important component uh, to Web2 was mobile, right? So iPhones, you have an internet connection, mobile browsing. And so when people talk about Web2, those are some components that are included. And then Web3, you know, again, is shifting to this decentralized, um, you know, version, like Leif was saying, and more than it being a decentralized version, right? Like, I think at its core, and you hear these terms in crypto frequently is, okay, you know, we have something that's open, we have something that's trustless. Um, and we have something that's permissionless. And those are kind of buzzwords that, you know, you're like, okay, what do these mean? Um, but it really is, um, you know, open is when people are building software um, that is openly visible, right? So like smart contracts, you can see these crypto projects and their technology, you can see the code, right? Um, and it's built in that manner. Um, and then also, you know, when you have something that's trustless, um, it allows people to, interact without a third party so without facebook and i know we're using social networks as examples here but it just makes it easy there's many more components um, and then the other thing is you know when you have something that's permissionless um you know you it allows anyone to participate right you don't need permission anyone can participate in bitcoin um and then something that's decentralized so i think those are like some of the key aspects um just diving into it more deeply that um can you know, help someone understand it. Also recommend reading about it online. There's a ton of great resources that go into way more detail and probably explain it uh, in a better manner than I just did. I, th I think I think both of you guys explained it fantastically for anybody who, who didn't know what Web 3.0 was and what the comparisons are to Web 2.0 and Web 1.0. Um, and I think for most of us who are in crypto, this is what we want, right? We want to move towards something like that where we're not having to give up as much data and information uh, in order to get access to these certain things. Uh, because obviously uh, we were at the point in, in the start of Web 2.0, as, as the example, Rocky, you used Facebook. Um, a lot of it isn't so much us considering whether or not we'd give up our data. It was just wanting to be included in that, right? Everybody I know, my friends, my family are all on Facebook. It's like, how do I get onto Facebook? I don't care about all of these privacy things that I got to click through. Just let me click through them. Let me give you as much data as you want. Let me get onto this platform so that I'm included. Um, and I think that's a that's a big aspect. And then afterwards, now we're starting to figure out, okay, well, what did I actually give up in order to be included in this? And, and we're finding that it's a little bit too much. Uh, my question to you guys is, um, and, and I hope to see a world where Web 3.0 kind of takes over and, and, and all of those values uh, as fast as possible is, are we too far on one side of the spectrum to come back? So my, my question being, um, we've given up too much we see government regulations all the time for crypto and, and threatening government regulations. Um, are we too far on one side for the government to then 
because their biggest excuse is, hey, there's a lot of bad actors on the internet. Um, we need as much transparency as possible. And people have to give up their data in order for us to secure everybody on the internet. Um, and then the second part is, uh, not just government side, but are we too far in terms of corporations to go back the other way? And, and the biggest example being AWS, right? Amazon Web Services. A lot of people don't realize that AWS is actually their biggest, um, I guess, business aspect of, of their company. Um, and they cloud, they have cloud services for, for like, I want to say almost everybody on earth, right? Everybody on earth is storing data in some way um, in at AWS. Is that too far over on one side of the spectrum to really pull it back into this decentralized aspect? Um, I'll let you go, Lee. Oh, well, um, well, in, in my opinion, I think the, the reason why there's so much pushback um, from governments and creating regulations and all that sort of thing is because everything is not going to be transparent. Um, so you have to think of it from that perspective. They, you, in, in order to control certain things, there are going to be powers that be that need to keep things to themselves, you know, and uh, you, you talk about are we too far gone or too far into into that kind of area? Um, yes and no. I think there's always going to be pushback from from those type of uh, sort of industries and and um, those type of companies because a lot of them lack the way things are at the moment um, because they are able to control certain things and be in control of what they can predict in the future and what they can budget for and what they can forecast. And so the kind of disruption that Web3 is going to bring is something that they won't, they can't forecast, they can't budget for, they can't plan for. Um, so I think there needs to be a happy medium between the two because the innovation is coming, whether they like it or not. It is the next logical step. So there's going to be a point where they either need to get on board with something because a lot of the stuff that that's, that's happening in the crypto space are answers to things that are, that are wrong with the traditional industry. So there's going to be a point where they need to find a happy medium where they give up certain amounts of control, but they are still involved in the innovation. And I think that kind of paradigm shift is going to be really interesting and it's going to be, Fascinating to watch. Um, I don't know if Rocky wants to add to that. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I agree. Um, you know, like there are when you're looking at AWS, right? They have a network effect, undoubtedly. Um, and then I, you know, they have so many participants using it. At that, how do you get people or participants to then switch to something else? You know, and it's tricky looking at switching costs. Okay, why would a business want to try out? You know, maybe something that was not Amazon, right? Okay, you know, like you'd have to give them proper incentive. There would have to be enough value to make them want to make the leap over to something else. Um, so from a business perspective, I think that it'll be challenging to get corporations um, to, you know, go and use Web 3.0 apps at first. Um, that being said, I think from the consumer perspective, there, you know, these networks usually have incentive to participate in the network, right? So that can be in the form of staking, that can be the form of running a node or, you know, a form of validation. Um, that can also be just through, you know, being actively um, participating by just holding a token that is associated with this Web3.0 decentralized app, right? And so I think from 
one perspective, yes, it will be challenging to, you know, go back from where we are and to, you know, get people to initially move into some of these decentralized services. But, you know, right now, these networks, a lot of them are set up where, okay, you know, it's these individual computers around the world that are hosting, you know, this data now, right? And it's, even if people don't realize it when you're participating or if you're mining or if you're, you know, staking, you're, you're, can be a part of validating a network and building out these data sets, you know, without really realizing you're even doing that. So I think from one perspective, I think it's going to gradually happen on its own as more people do participate um, in cryptocurrency in general, right? Um, so I, I think with time, yes, we will be able to get back from the point at which we are at, but I think it might take a little longer than other people speculate. Right, and that's true. And, uh, and that's true for all technology, right? The second a, a concept of a certain new technology is implemented or introduced, a lot of people jump to conclusions and think, oh my goodness, the future is here. It's going to happen within this next year, right? Even something non-crypto related like virtual reality, right? We, we put on the yeah. Oculus head, head glasses or the goggles or whatever, and we think, oh my goodness, this virtual reality, augmented reality is coming. Everything's going to be in VR. Um, and little do we know that's going to take a lot longer than, than we than we really think, right? And and I think the same thing with Web 3.0 and, and decentralization, the concept of that. Um, and and but like you said, Rocky, people are running their own personal nodes on the Bitcoin network, on the Ethereum network, and and they're partici they're participating in building a community like that. Um, and this is just kind of the first iteration of that type of technology, and that's going to be spread out through a lot more different industries, not just finance, um, yeah. the social media, whatnot, um, all those uh, fun different areas. Uh, how does reserve fit into that web 3.0 um, philosophy and that and that concept and and how how is reserve going to be able to capitalize off of that and how how does their I guess their company structure and, and their their tech and uh, how does that all fit into into the web 3.0? Yeah, and so that's a question I've thought a good amount on. Um, it is a little tricky because you know as you know, the app is still centralized. I mean, so is the protocol, but with mainnet, the protocol will be, um, you know, decentralized. Um, and, you know, obviously RSR is the governance token to participate um, in making decisions for the protocol, right? But the app is going to be centralized. You know, they said on Twitter, I think Nevin did that, you know, maybe one day it could be a DAO, but for now, um, you know, that's really not an option. And I understand that from a business perspective, um, but, that being said, you know, I think there is some interplay between the app and the protocol, right? The protocol receives value from transactions on the app. Um, you know, arbitrage can also kind of act as a connector or a bridge between the app and, you know, the amount of activity on it and the protocol. Um, but I think most importantly, and probably the most clear connection with Reserve and Web3 is that we are going to have a sound and decentralized form of money RSV that is stable. Um, and I think the fact that it is decentralized is very imperative, right? Even if the app's not, um, the fact it is means that it will be really, really challenging for anyone to shut down. It increases its security, right? And you have this community, people that are so actively involved um, that, you know, I think it's going to have a perfect foundation to, you know, be really the force, the first usable, easily usable form of stable currency that people um, in countries with high, with high inflation can use. And then, you know, maybe it will transition to countries that don't have super high inflation eventually. Um, but I, th I think, you know, roundabout way of saying um, the fact that it is decentralized makes it so that it is not owned by 
you know, anyone in specific so that if it is trying to accomplish something like it is, which is a very touchy subject, you know, replacing currencies, that can be very, um, you know, it, it can put your company at risk, right? So the fact that we do have this decentralized form of governance will allow it to persist and accomplish its goal. Um, and really, you know, it, it's much more trustworthy, in my opinion, it, you know, if, you know, PayPal was the one who owned this, it's like, okay, yes, I have money, I can send it around the world, perhaps, um, but this really would give users trust, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think building on what Rocky said, um, we, we talk about hyperinflation and, um, I mean, from, from South Africa, one of our neighboring countries was Zimbabwe. And um, Zimbabwe got to a point where the, the money that they had was less valuable than stuff like toilet paper. Um, and being able to create a currency or stable stablecoin that is not at any risk of sort of political aspect or environmental aspect or anything like that that can shut it down is something that is imperative. And what Reserve is doing and what they've done in the last two years, showing that it's one of the most downloaded apps in, in Venezuela, showing that it's 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 got that that track that traction, you know. Um, when those type of when the when when the roadmap items get ticked off, it's it's going to be interesting to see how everything works out. And yeah, like 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 Rocky said, the the trustworthiness of of the RSV token is 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 kind of the, the biggest asset, I think. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a very interesting point you guys both make in terms of their roadmap, and, and it looks like there's going to be a huge end to this uh, this year, right, 2021 leading up to, to mainnet launch at the at the end of Q4, as far as we, we know, um, although they have said that they will be giving more specifics in terms of timeline and dates uh, in the next couple of weeks. So we'll definitely be on the lookout for that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Reserve is one of uh, Diamond Atlas's key investments or one of their bigger investments. Um, can I get both of your guys' personal thoughts on where the project is at, um, how far it's come, and, and where you guys think the future of the project is headed? Yeah, um, I, I can start with this one. So, you know, the project has made amazing progress. I know some people that are like newer on the Discord are, you know, get frustrated because price has gone down a lot. Um, and that's completely understandable, right? But as was mentioned earlier in this call, um, you know, price doesn't necessarily reflect the fundamentals, what's happening behind the scenes, what they're accomplishing, right? You know, it's very emotional. Crypto is such a new, you know, market that, It'll pump an insane amount, you know, do 70%, 90%, whatever drawdown. And so, you know, that's not really relevant to the project. The project has been building kind of in quiet, as they always say, you know, with the community, they want to talk about, you know, being open with how they're developing, you know, to the people in these countries with high inflation, to the RSR rangers. Um, but, you know, they didn't want to do marketing until now because they really wanted to, first of all, establish a base so that they'd have a first mover advantage right without everyone else competition wise saying oh my god look at this business model they have look at the success they're having um so you know i'm really excited to see what starts happening with marketing here and you know this un petition um but so it's a really exciting time to be a ranger um you know the, the from when i first started investing in it i think they didn't have the app out at that point in time you know it was this concept they weren't even close to mainnet right and we have mainnet just around the corner 
where the protocol will actually be live, um, which is super exciting if you've been following it for as long as we have. That will enable arbitrage, um, which is exciting, right? Eventually, we should see token burn through arbitrage. Um, and, you know, it might not be immediate. And I know Space always has uh, some, you know, he's like, don't have too high hopes for arbitrage in terms of actual profit. But I think the key to it is, okay, one, it acts as a way to bring value to the protocol, cause it to be deflationary eventually. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's just really exciting to see the progress they have been making, you know, and I think their strategy is much more focused on, okay, we want to create the best possible experience for our app users, because at the end of the day, what matters is adoption of the app, you know, retention of these users, and then being able to scale out the app. And then everything else with RSR and RSR price will take care of itself if you're invested, right? And I think that's, if any, if there's any takeaway, it's okay. Yes, looking at the price can be addicting. Yes, seeing it go up and then down a ton can be, you know, a little scary. Don't get me wrong. That being said, you know, if we do see success, we see product market fit, which seems so clear, right? People are literally have given it bad reviews on the app store because they're like, I still can't download this. I'm on the wait list. So they don't give it a five star. And so just seeing that level of demand, it really fills a need um, that these people have that, you know, they literally have not been able to save money. Their money becomes worthless. And this is an easy to use solution where you don't need any crypto experience. It doesn't feel like you're using cryptocurrency. It's just an app that you download that you can secure your life savings um, that you can send money on. Um, and I think that's really amazing. And they're focused on the right things, building a product that has a clear need, a clear use case that people literally are begging for online. And yes, they can't let them all on yet. I mean, well, now they're you know opening things up, but you know, they're like, okay, we're messing with people's not messing, but we're holding and we're allowing people to put their money with us. We can't have any errors. We can't have any mistakes, you know, like on Vivino, which is a wine app. Okay. It goes down for a little bit. So what, if it's somebody's money, a transaction doesn't go through or there's a bug, that's a big deal. Um, so I think, you know, they have this amazing approach to growing, building the app, mass adoption. And I think it's, you know, going to take off here soon, which is exciting. Yeah, no, I can, I can definitely um, agree with everything that Rocky said. Um, Rocky's done a very nice um, research piece that we will be releasing once our website is live. Um, so all the rangers can look out for that. Um, but yeah, I think I think one of the biggest things for any project to succeed um, is user experience and users. I mean, I think I heard it was Mark Cuban speak about it, and the biggest asset of a company is its is its users, is its customers. You know, you you don't create a, a, a um, you don't create a product uh, based on technology, based on how amazingly like innovative it is. Uh, because what happens if the people don't want to use it? You can't be successful if you don't have um, if you don't have users. So, um, being able to tailor the needs around your specific customers and then working backwards to the product, I think Reserve has that down to a T. Obviously, the, the innovation is there, the the idea is there, but they are trying to like like Rocky said, fill a demand and and basically ensure that these people don't lose out to stuff like hyperinflation, stuff like, um, I don't know, stuff like uh, the, the things not going through or, or, or payments not going through. Um, 
and being able to work backwards and and showing the the innovation and the um the foresight to do to do like a backwards um a backwards development is something that we're looking at and the reason why it is part of our, our portfolio um i said i mentioned it earlier we, we're trying to we're trying to invest in projects that are going to change the world right projects that are going to break molds projects that are going to change the industry for the better change the world for the better and um rocky brief, briefly mentioned it about the 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 un petition um, and we believe that something when you when you earn something it should stay and have that certain purchasing power no matter what happens and i think that's what rsr in its nutshell is trying to achieve and they well on their way to achieving it based on what we've seen in the last couple of months right and i think uh the the un petition you guys are talking about is the right to a stable currency um, which I think they're trying to organize a specific date and to get enough signatures um, uh, to send off. So um, I, I'm sure every one of us will be promoting that quite a bit and trying to get the awareness out there for everybody to sign their name onto that. Uh, but but it's true. If, if you work super darn hard for uh, and in return you get a currency back, um, you should have a right for that currency to not inflate and for you to lose purchasing power and the ability to feed your family and to and to take care of yourself. Um, it's just doesn't seem very, very right. And it should be a human, human right. Um, in terms of, uh, and this is a side that not very many people like to talk about in terms of the, the risks and the dangers to the project, uh, and, and to the success of the project. Um, uh, obviously there are a lot of them, very common ones like government intervention, uh, um, like the, like the app not working competitors, beating them to the space. Uh, what are some of the biggest risks to the success of the project that you guys see? Yeah, and so, you know, that, that's something that I think is really important to talk about, right? Um, people often for their favorite projects sometimes brush aside potential risks, right? I think that's one of the first things you need to address. You need to continually update your understanding of those based on how the project is, you know, moving forward, based on what they're doing, based on how macro environmental factors come in. Um, you know, or, you know, if anything changes with a government that they're working, you know, if they're, you know, doing something in Venezuela, which they are, and there's some big update that's important to follow, right? Um, and, you know, I think it's easy to say, okay, government intervention, uh, Nevin's addressed, you know, basically their approach to reducing that risk. So I won't spend time here on that. I personally think that one of the largest risks, which I'm confident they'll avoid this, but it does RSB successfully maintain its peg once there is a significant amount of volume and it kind of goes through bigger stress test periods, right? I, I know they've been doing a lot of testing um, and I know that it seems to work right now and I'm confident that they will be able to make it continue to work. You know, it's not an algorithmic stable coin like um, Titan, I believe was the name of that project that absolutely dumped because their stable coin, you know, like was designed horribly. Um, you, you know, if you look at, um, Terra, you know, and their stable coin, it almost depaged. I think, you know, when Bitcoin dumped initially, I think it went down to like 70 cents. Um, it's an algorithmic stable coin, right? It's not fully backed um, by, you know, money and reserved. I think they took every step. It's either fully collateralized or it's over collateralized, depending on, you know, just how kind of cash flow and things are ebbing and flowing. Um, so I think they're addressing that risk really well. Um, but I, I think that's a risk that people don't talk about. Um, but, you know, I'm confident that they will make sure that it's going to work perfectly, even with high volume. 
Um, and then I think, you know, I, I'm not too worried about competition. You know, people talk about competition and maybe a year ago I was more concerned and I was right, but they have such a great head start. They built such a loyal community, right? They're in these countries. They have people in the field talking with understanding these, you know, basically experiences and the needs that are there, right? They have people that live in these countries that have always lived there on the team. And I think that's so crucial, right? And the Discord the other day, someone was asking about Facebook and like, okay, you, you know, is their DM or whatever they renamed it going, you know, from Libra going to be a threat? And it's, yeah, I mean, they Facebook has so many users. If they release a stable currency and it's really easy to use, I'm sure that will take, you know, some share of the market. That being said, you know, they're so big, they can't move quickly, which, you know, has been addressed by Nevin and Peter Till told them, you know, not to look for a partnership with Facebook in the early days or with PayPal. He's like, you know, you guys can move fast. You guys can build and no one's going to be looking at you, right? Facebook's under so much scrutiny. So I really think that they're agile. They can move fast enough. They already have that first mover advantage um, and they really have a loyal community and, you know, they, they have it set up. So you know, these local banks, these local payment processors are converting immediately. You know, do you think Facebook's going to put a team in Venezuela and get those, you know, small, you know, those deals made with these local banks and payment processors? And like, does Facebook even want to host or to deal with boulevards? I don't think so, right? So I think the fact that they're building it local in Venezuela primarily and then scaling it is key, similar to, you know, what they talk about with Uber focusing on San Francisco, then scaling once they have it down. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, Rocky kind of, he, he, he mentioned two of the things that I was thinking about, right? I mean, I think competition is one of them, but I think he's covered that enough. Um, the the main concern that I would have had was the pegging to purchasing power, right? Because so pegging to a dollar and then purchasing to peg, to purchase, uh, sorry, pegging to purchasing power thereafter. Um, and what goes into that sort of basket of assets? Um and I think that will be the major kind of growing pain that they'll have. Um, and, you know, the, the team has done so well over the last couple of months and, and years uh, to develop the, the protocol and to develop the project. Um, I, I hope that they are able to do that, and I'm sure they will. Um, it is just something that we would, we would be thinking about um, and then a very small kind of negative is that the app is centralized, obviously. But you know, if the app does move decentralized, then that's then that's great. Um, but I think being centralized at the moment will do the job. Um, so yeah, we're excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I think I think the part about competitors, um, which I obviously fear a lot, um, uh, and and Rocky's point about them having a team in Venezuela is really. The big differentiating factor to me. Um, a lot of these people who do desperately need uh, a an app like this or a project like this, um, they're living in countries where there's super hyperinflation, and they don't necessarily have the time or the resources to to study uh, about these projects and to learn about how this tech works. Right? They're they're there trying to earn enough money and and to not have that inflate fast enough where they're able to eat on a daily basis. They're trying to figure out where their next meal comes from. A lot of people are trying to figure out how they're able to save up enough money to pay rent or, or, or to buy stuff for their kids. They don't have time to go out there and to read a whole bunch of different articles on, hey, this versus this. 
and and especially when you hear if the first thing you read is something like Rocky was mentioning, like Iron Finance and 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 their Titan token, or like Terra and their UST token, where it's kind of depegging or, or getting close to zero point seven, and they're losing value. They don't have time to look at all these different projects. But if you've got some, if you've got a team on the ground that's educating them and, and telling them why this is useful and how to use the app and and why this is safe and why when you invest you're not going to lose your money and we're here, so if something does happen, you can come see us to ask questions. Um, that's definitely going to put you a leg up versus all of your competition, and it's going to make it a lot easier to to get a lot of users into the app. So I do agree with that, and I think it's also very important to address a lot of the the risks to um, the success of this project because just like everything else you invest in, um, especially at an early stage like this, um, there is a significant chance that it may fail. Um, it's obviously nice, the more, um, as Leith was saying, the more customers that you're starting to see use the app, it does provide a little bit of comfort and stability in that there are a lot of users currently using the product. There's a lot of demand there and that they're starting to work out the kinks and that people are satisfied enough with the product to not need to leave the space. Um, so that's that's very awesome. Um, let's move on to, a, 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 and I don't wanna touch too much into these because um, this is a, an RSR or a reserve specific podcast, but what are some of the other projects that Diamond Atlas is, is investing in and how does that play with that web 3.0 narrative or what are some of these projects and what are they trying to achieve? So yeah, we have quite a number of, of, of projects that we're interested in. Um, one of them being uh, Legacy. Um, so Legacy um, is obviously one of, the, one of the projects that we're invested in and we're actually involved with the protocol as well. Um, we will be a governing body on the, on the protocol. Um, so like I said before, when, when we're trying to add value um, and, and be involved with these projects, um, it's kind of like putting your money where your mouth is. You know, you want to, you, you want to align with the project and if they succeed, you succeed. Right. So, um, that the legacy, it's got a, it's got an amazing product. Um, their, their, their main net's going live, I think in the next two to three weeks. Um, and it's, it's essentially, it's a fork of Tron. Um, and it just, it just, it just uh, appeals to a lot of the objectives that we're trying to achieve. You know, it, it's um, it's fast paced. It's um, the community is amazing, um, and yeah, we we believe they they also they're going to have a stablecoin as well, USDL, um, and so yeah, it's it there's 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 more that's going to come out. Uh, we've got a, a couple of content um, pieces that we'll, we'll be releasing, like I said, with the website. Um, and everyone who's interested can go in and um, and speak about it. Rocky will probably have more to say because he is also a big legacy fan. Um, but yeah, in terms of the other projects, a lot of them are um, under wraps at the moment because uh, a lot of them haven't even gone live. So um, once our website goes live, there'll be um, there'll be a full transparent view of what projects we're invested in. Another one that I can speak about is Gather. Gather is a token that we are invested in that is trying to disrupt the ad revenue industry. Um, and they, not just that, but they are able to provide computing power as well um, through sort of a, an underlying mana um, on, on the, the kind of, sorry, my, my screen is frozen. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so yeah, they they are able to kind of 
taken um, unused processing power and utilize that and package it and sell it on um, and then reward users for using the Gather online protocol. Um, and so you know, we just found that their project, their product is also kind of revolutionary. It's 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 new. It's it's an, it's it's exciting, um, and you know it's it's just something that we would look to invest in because it is disrupting. It is something that could possibly change such a behemoth industry like the ad revenue industry, um, and possibly. Um, create better user content and better user experience. Um, but in terms of the rest of the projects, um, yeah, those will be available um, to view for everyone once our website goes live. Um, Rocky, I don't know if you want to pick on any of the other ones. Yeah, no, I think the easiest thing to do because this is RSR focused um, would be to just check out our website once it's live. We have um, a report on every single project that we're involved in that will be live there um, very shortly here. And that way it's not us just explaining it here, you know, it's a much more um, yeah, great overview and summary of the projects and why specifically we have a position them and our thoughts on the project. Um, and again, that's in the attempt to be transparent, but also to provide value to the community, right? And we really want to have that balance of, okay, we're investing in these projects, we're working with them, trying to actively, you know, help them accomplish their goals through many different services, but then also say, okay, to the community, you know, here's information. We just did, you know, hundreds of hours of research and here's our condensed findings. Do with it what you want, you know? We're not trying to shill it. It's just, here's our thoughts, here's our opinion, here's our research, feel free to check it out. Uh, is there a timeline on when that uh, website's going to go live? Um, yeah, so we we were hoping to get that website live in the next two weeks. Um, yeah, we've been working on it for the last month or so, um, and we've been working on content for for the for, for probably the last couple of months just to make sure that we have exactly what we want before we disseminate. You know, and I think everyone will really enjoy the way that the website's set up. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of tuning and throwing and and deciding on how to approach the the subject um but we feel that we've got the right tools and the right um approach uh for everyone in our community to be able to sort of navigate and um ask us questions there will be obviously a contact us part um so anything that anyone needs to know personally or that's not available on the website we will be able to get in touch with them um it's not, and it's not just for the community, it's for new projects as well. So if projects are looking at trying to raise capital or, or, or um, trying to add additional services that we may provide, they can always just contact us. But like I said, it should be live in the next two weeks or so. Um, we don't have like a specific time on it, but it will probably be within the next month. That's awesome. Um, and I'm confident that the majority of uh, people listening will definitely check that out because the majority of people listening are in the RSR Discord. Uh, in which Space and, and Rocky have talked a lot about some of these projects that you've touched on. There's a lot of people in there that invest in legacy um, as well as gather. Um, so if they're happy with the with the little blurbs that, that Space sends out, they'll be they'll be very interested in reading more about it. So as we wrap this up, uh, I've got a couple questions that, that I ask all of my guests. Um, hopefully you guys are prepared. Uh, I, I did give them ahead of time. So hopefully you guys got are, are prepared and, and thought these through. Um, the first thing I've got is the best piece of advice you've ever received. If anybody wants to. Yeah, yeah. So I think 
I, I fought on that one for a little bit and didn't want to go too cliche or generic. But, you know, I think one thing that sticks out to me um, is just to always keep learning and to find things that make it easy for you to keep learning that you're passionate about, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I think for a lot of people um, that have gotten into crypto, you know, it's this exciting new industry. And yes, it's exciting because you could make a lot of money. That's a component of it, but it's so complex. You know, I constantly rereading and then have to reread exactly what EIP 1559 is. Cause I'm like, okay, wait, the, like, you forget the details. Right. And, and so, you know, it's just, it's a great area in which you can constantly learn and challenge yourself. Um, but even outside of crypto, you know, just finding things to continue to learn about your whole life. Yeah. And for me, um, the most important piece of advice I got was never stop meeting people and never stop. Like one of the things that Rocky said is never stop learning, but never stop meeting people. Never stop thinking that you are the smartest person in the room um, because there's always going to be a point where someone who's smarter than you comes in and schools you. Uh, and you know what, if you think, and in that way, you will never stop learning. So um, it's all about compounding knowledge for me um, and learning as much as you can. Um, but if you're going to go, if you're going to go into a situation and always think that you can meet someone new and learn something new and, and you never know when that, when that network effect is going to come up, come up and, and help you in your, in your life, you know? Um, so that's the one thing and, and never, never, never shy away from a challenge as well. I think, I think being an Olympian was, is testament to that. You know, I think being told when I was younger that I would never mount too much as a swimmer you want to kind of set your goals and, and, and get involved and, and prove people wrong, you know? Um, and that's what a lot of these projects are doing actually. So like I said before, um, if you have to tell, if you have to tell traditional industries that uh, a project like Preserve when it came about was going to be a, a project that changes the world of, uh, of for inflation for the better, they would have looked at you and been like, what are you talking about? Why, we we in this whole other dynamic. You guys are you guys are in space. You know you guys are not even in the right frame of mind. And I think it's just about being able to prove people wrong and 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 focusing on on what you can achieve and and what you can control. Um, so yeah. Very well said and great pieces of advice. And uh, another question I've got is best book you've ever read. Um, so I do read some nonfiction, but I think my favorite thing is to read fiction and it kind of helps to like decompress um, and just, you know, it helps me go to sleep. Haven't been reading as much lately, but that being said, I think my favorite book would be Name of the Wind. Um, so yeah, mine is a book called Unbroken. There's actually a movie about it as well. It's about, it's, it's funny, it's also about an Olympic athlete, but it's about this um, Olympic runner back in the 19... It was the 1930s because it was just before world war ii and uh basically he ran at the olympics and competed and um and then eventually he was obviously drafted for the army and uh he was shot that they were shot down in a plane and uh he got taken he got taken hostage by the japanese army and survived like excruciating torture and no food, no water. Um, and also he survived on the ocean for 42 days, um, which is unbelievable. But, um, and eventually, uh, obviously America won the war 
and uh, he able, he was able to come out of that whole scenario unscathed and well, not unscathed, but he was uh, it was a true testament of willpower, you know, to be able to to go through that torture and come out on the other side. Awesome, awesome. And the uh, the last question that a lot of people are probably super interested in: uh, your price prediction for the end of the year, December thirty first, twenty twenty one, for RSR. <laughs> um. That's tricky, um, it, obviously, right? It's a ton of speculation. It's kind of fun, though. I know, you know, Barony um, is always 10 cent, and I always understood the logic behind that, right? You know, potential increase in some circulating supply could lead to a little bit um, of a down movement over time. I still want to go with 32 cents. Um, you know, earlier this year, we were asking, I was like, okay, you know, 30 to 40 cents. Uh, that's obviously assuming the bull run continues. Otherwise, I don't think it's going to go there on its own as a standalone bear market performer. Market's looking pretty good, but I'm, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't want to be a thousand percent bullish right now. I, I think that kind of comes with the bottom. Though I was reading that, it's like, all right, usually when the bottom happens and you start an uptrend, you don't believe it's an uptrend. So hopefully that's the case right now. Um, but yeah, 32 cents, 32 is my lucky number, and I think that kind of fits within my kind of fundamental and. Uh, you know, technical analysis, as well as like looking at, you know, market cap and what that might mean with uh, mainnet coming. Yeah, so um, I think what Rocky said also makes sense. I think like everyone thinks our oh, bull market is back on and and and, and all that. Um, and it may well be, you know, um, but like you said, we have to be cautiously optimistic about everything. Um, this could just be another sort of shoulder on the side and, when it, and it hits back down, you don't know. Um, so ultimately, based on what happened last year, um, my prediction is that RSR is going to be just above 20 cents, I think probably like 22, 23, um, just based on the fact that it's kind of double the bottom that it was in September. And I think it went up to 11, 12 cents uh, during this part of the bull run. So I'm thinking probably double what it was. Um, there may be another aspect to it where it does reach 30 cents because of the main net and the adoption thereof. Um, but essentially my prediction would be between 24 and 30 cents, I think. Awesome. I think a lot of people would be very happy with either one of those predictions coming true. Um, I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast. Uh, of course it's going to be in the show notes, but for those of you guys who want to follow and maybe reach out to them, uh, you can follow them at goat RSR or at Leith shank underscore tank, um, or on the Diamond Atlas uh, Telegram, which will also be in the show notes below. So um, please take a look um, and ask them any questions and reach out to them uh, if you have any questions. Uh, but I want to thank you both again for coming on the pod. This is absolutely fantastic, and I hope to do it again sometime soon. Maybe when you guys have the uh, have the website launched and you guys are a bit into your um, your groove there, I want to have uh, you guys back on to, to talk more about developments uh, of, of RSR going forward. Yeah, yeah. That for sure, awesome. yeah, thanks. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah, no, no, thanks for your time. And yeah, this, this was awesome. Glad you had us on. Uh, was excited for this for the last couple of weeks since we've been talking about it. So appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. It's been great. Um, and yeah, it's good to be, it's good to be uh, uh, the pioneers of a three-man three podcast. So um, yeah. excited to see how, how the community reacts. I hope you're able to get lots of value from this podcast. And as always, if you're interested in reaching out to me, you can contact me on Twitter at my personal account at RSR Ernie or the podcast account at InReservePod. And if you don't have Twitter, you can shoot me an email at InReservePodcast at gmail.com 
or feel free to join our RSR Rangers Discord channel uh, in the invite link attached in the show notes below. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you on the next podcast.